So just by way of reminder, in the beginning of John chapter 12, Jesus had arrived in Bethany. That was six days before the Passover. Uh, Most likely Jesus arrived on a Friday and the Jewish Sabbath began Friday at sundown and continued until Saturday at sundown. That was when a, a new day began. And so most likely what happened was Jesus arrived on a Friday, spent the Sabbath kind of laying low with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And most likely this banquet that we read about in the beginning of John chapter 12 happened Saturday night before the Passover feast where Jesus was to be crucified. So remember that the whole, the rest of the Gospel of John is really covering only about a week span. So Saturday night is this banquet and Mary comes and anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair and then we pick up our study in that context. Verse 9 tells us that when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, that is in Bethany, which again I would remind you is about two miles outside of Jerusalem, so the distance from our church building to Shephat Wildi, that was about the distance from Bethany to Jerusalem. So when the large crowd of the Jews heard that Jesus was there, that is in Bethany, they came. Not only on account of him, so yes, they wanted to see Jesus. Jesus had become somewhat famous by this time in his ministry. But not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the crowd wants to see the spectacle. A man was dead, and now he's alive. They come to check it out, to lay eyes on him. And so there is this large crowd, and it is doubtless a mixture of those who truly believe and many who don't. There are some who are genuine believers, like the disciples, who do truly believe. Even they, though, do not quite understand everything about Jesus and all of that. We see that same theme even in verse 16 of John chapter 12. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So there is this portion of the crowd that truly believes, but they're still not crystal clear. You might think even of Martha back in John chapter 11, where Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says, well, I know that he will rise on the last day. Right? So she has this confidence in Jesus, but she's still not sure, like, is he really going to raise her brother now? And so she has this mix of hope and confidence in Jesus and yet hesitation where Jesus says roll away the stone and she's like but Lord he's been in there for four days and by now there's going to be a stench she was a true believer and yet there was still this shroud of confusion we might say or or hesitation or uncertainty or a lack of clarity at least there was the true believers with a lack of clarity in the crowd and then there were a bunch who were doubtless not true believers. And they were just there because Jesus was an interesting novelty to them. And they wanted to see Jesus. And then, oh, a man came back from the dead? Let's go check it out. And so again, this was another interesting novelty. And so they're there for this reason. The crowd, uh, the next day, 
and into the Passion Week is always this admixture of true believers and then others with various motives, various perspectives on Jesus. And then, of course, there are the members of the Sanhedrin. And their hostility is, again, front and center in the passage before us. At the end of John chapter 11, they had made a plot to kill Jesus. Verse 53 of John 11 says, From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. More on this in a little bit, but um, for now, just let me say, let me, let me just point out that this hostility is front and center again. And in verse 10, we read that the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I would just remind you of the theme that I drew out uh, from the end of chapter 11 of just the absurdity and the irrationality of unbelief. So Jesus brings a man back from the dead and instead of concluding, wow, I would love to live again after I die let me believe in Jesus. It's like, no, we won't believe, we'll kill Jesus. And not only will we kill Jesus, but we'll kill the guy that Jesus raised from the dead so that nobody else believes in him. It's just wildly absurd and evil, but wildly absurd. And what is especially humorous to me, which I had never really noticed before, but it was pointed out to me as I was reading commentaries this week. Most of the chief priests were Sadducees. They were the most influential uh, people in the Sanhedrin and the family of the chief priests at the time were Sadducees. Now the Sadducees deny a resurrection. (laughs) So the raising of Lazarus is especially awkward for them. It's awkward enough for the Pharisees because now all of a sudden Jesus is getting all this attention and people are going to trust in Jesus instead of listening to the Pharisees. That same dynamic is operative with the Sadducees, but also it's like, well, but we're telling everybody that nobody can be raised from the dead. And here Jesus goes and raises a guy from the dead. Well, let's kill Jesus and him and get rid of this awkward situation. So this is what's happening. This is kind of the context. And this is what verses 9 to 11 set up for us. Then the next day, verse 12, which would be if that was the banquet was Saturday night, the next day would be Sunday. So here we are on Palm Sunday, right? The Sunday before the crucifixion. This is um, what the crowds do in verses 12 and 13. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So there's this crowd from Bethany, and then there's the crowd that's in Jerusalem, which hadn't come to Bethany. But as this group from Bethany starts moving toward Jerusalem. So Jesus, the members of the Sanhedrin who were with them, the believers in Jesus, the crowds that just wanted to see the novelty. It's a big event. Everybody who had been in Bethany starts moving towards Jerusalem. And the crowd in Jerusalem, which had come to Jerusalem from all over Judea and Israel, this large crowd hears about Jesus coming. And so they... Take branches of palm trees, verse 13 tells us, and they go out to meet Jesus, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is what 
is happening. After we have reviewed the context, we see just the facts. This is what is happening in this text. Now, why do the people get branches of palm trees and go out to meet Jesus? The, in Le, way back in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 40, we read the instruction about the, how the Jews are to keep the Feast of Booths. Now, this is not the Feast of Booths, but just listen and bear this in mind. In Leviticus 23, 40, the Lord instructs them, And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. So there is this connection between the branches of palm trees and rejoicing before the Lord at the Feast of Booths. That's probably the origin of this idea of, okay, it's time to rejoice in the Lord, let's go get palm branches. That's probably the origin of this practice. But obviously Leviticus was written centuries before the coming of Jesus. And by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, palm branches, Carson tells us, had become a national symbol. Palm branches were so associated with the nation of Judah, um, or Judea, that uh, coins were struck with palm branches on them uh, to be spent in the locale. About a century earlier, there had been some rebellions against the Roman Empire by the Maccabees. Uh, you can refresh yourself on ancient Jewish history at your own uh, leisure, but in broad terms, about a century earlier, there had been some revolts uh, by the Maccabees against the Roman Empire, and both Simon Maccabee and his brother Judas Maccabee had their victories celebrated by the people coming out and waving palm branches. And so this was very much just a cultural thing. It was a mindset of, we're rejoicing in the Lord, we're rejoicing in the Lord's salvation, we're rejoicing in the victory of the Jewish people over against our enemies, God's victory that he has won for us. This is how the Maccabean revolts were understood by the people. When God works a great salvation for us, when God raises up a deliverer, when um, we're really pleased with the way someone has conquered the enemies of God on our behalf, we're going to get palm branches and wave them. This is what's going on in this text. Now, the scriptural basis for their words comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. And Hosanna means save. Save now. Save, I pray. This is what Hosanna means. So in Psalm 118, we read, Save us, or Hosanna, O Lord. Hosanna, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So this is what is going on in this passage. These people understand Jesus to be a deliverer. These people understand Jesus to be one through whom God is going to save, through whom God is going to give victory. They understand this as a time for rejoicing in the Lord. They understand this as a time 
for celebration because God's salvation is drawing nigh. And so they get palm branches and they go out and they wave them. They say, Lord, save. Lord, save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that is, on the Lord's behalf, to do the Lord's bidding, to win salvation for God's people. So we know the context and we've kind of seen the facts of what's happening. Now, Jesus' response to all this is going to be the substance of the rest of our sermon today. And it moves his mission forward in at least two ways. Jesus' response to all this moves his mission forward in at least two ways. The first way in which Jesus' response to all this moves his mission forward is that it triggers his hour or it triggers his time. So I put that in air quotes for those of you who are listening online, uh, perhaps at a later date and or perhaps you, you're just not looking at the TV and you've got the audio on. Hour, in quotes, or time, in quotes. This, these words appear throughout the Gospels regularly. My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you see this regularly. There is an hour appointed for Jesus. There is a time appointed for Jesus. And before that hour, before that time, when Jesus is going to go to the cross and fulfill his foremost messianic work, before that time, before that hour, what we often find Jesus doing is kind of laying low withdrawing, right? So the crowds come and want to make him king by force, but Jesus withdrew from them, we read, right? Or somebody suggests something to them and he says, no, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Especially in the book of Mark, we have what uh, theologians call the Markan secret, because Jesus is often telling people, don't tell anyone about this. So he heals someone, he says, don't tell anyone about this, right? Keep this quiet. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Everything in its proper time. Jesus didn't want to uh, sort of make his identity known publicly as uh, the Messiah, as the King of the Jews, as the Savior of Israel before the proper time. There would be a time coming for that, but it wasn't just yet. Now, the Sanhedrin which was the ruling religious council of the Jews, had been planning not to kill Jesus at the feast. So they had been planning to kill Jesus, don't mistake that. But at the beginning of Matthew 26, we read this. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Mark 14, the beginning of Mark 14, tells us the same thing. And so it's, a, it's attested to us in John's gospel that they had been planning to put him to death, that they were already plotting. But it's attested to us in Matthew and Mark's gospel that one of the details of their plot was not at the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. 
But we will recall that in the beginning of John chapter 12 and verse 1, we read this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. And if you remember the sermon that I preached on that, I asked you, what is the therefore, therefore? And the answer to that is, Jesus was the Passover lamb. And his time, his hour was drawing nigh. It was the appointed time for him to be the lamb slain to take away the sin of the world. It was the time appointed for him to be slain so that by faith we might apply his blood to the doorposts of our hearts that God's wrath might pass over us. It was the appointed time. It was the appointed hour. Therefore, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. But there's this problem. The Sanhedrin doesn't want to kill him during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Well, Jesus' response, or shall I say his non-response, to the adoration of the crowds on that first Palm Sunday triggers the hour. Because everybody comes out shouting what they shouted during the revolts against the Romans about a century earlier. Waving palm branches. You see what's happening. Jesus is allowing a crisis to develop whereby the Romans are going to become concerned. Is this another Judas Maccabee? Or, or a, a Simon Maccabee? Is this going to be another Jewish rebellion and uprising? If it is, you know full well what will happen. The Roman army will come in with full force and the Jews will have restricted or lose altogether much of the benefit that they had acquired over this time. And who will be the, the foremost losers? Not those on the periphery of Jewish society. Not those who are um, already struggling and languishing under Roman rule. They won't be the foremost losers. How much worse could it really get? Those who stand to lose the most are actually the Sanhedrin. If the Romans come in to quell a rebellion, the Sanhedrin stands to lose the most. And so, all these people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, waving palm branches, the victory of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord, the deliverer of the Lord is here. This is creating a political crisis. It's also really accentuating a religious crisis. Remember that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are opposed to Jesus because Jesus is taking their followers from them and gathering them to himself. They're seeing that the fervor of the crowds is only strengthening and only increasing with respect to their love for Jesus and their desire to follow Jesus and to be his disciples instead of theirs. In their minds, this is a departure from orthodoxy. This is, Jesus in their minds is not a servant of God, but a distraction from the true service of God. And so not only is Jesus precipitating a political crisis by not quelling the crowds, Jesus is also precipitating a religious crisis by not quelling the crowds. In other words, he's, he's raising the tension 
um, that already exists between him and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, bringing their opposition to such a pitch that they will make their plot to kill him a more urgent matter and seek to do away with him at the feast of the Passover, which will then bring their timing into harmony with his own, and with the plan of the Father that the Passover lamb should be slaughtered at the Passover. And so these crowds come out acknowledging Jesus as the Savior, acknowledging Jesus as the Deliverer. And you remember from the other Gospel accounts, it's not here, but in the other Gospel accounts, people say, Jesus, quiet the crowds. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If they keep silent, even the stones will cry out. Jesus makes no attempt whatsoever to diminish the fervor of the crowd. And in, in doing so, or should I say in not doing so, he precipitates both a political and a religious crisis that makes it a more urgent matter in the Pharisees' minds, in the Sadducees' minds, in the chief priests' minds to kill Jesus. So Jesus' non-response, not quelling the crowds, not suppressing the crowds, triggers his hour and in that way moves his mission forward. The second way in which Jesus responds to the facts, his response to the crowds and what they do um, reveals the nature of his mission, or pardon me, furthers his mission is that it reveals the nature of his mission. So the first is that Jesus not quelling the crowds triggers his hour. The second way in which his response furthers his mission is that it reveals the nature of his mission. So we've already seen that Jesus makes no attempt to diminish the fervor of the crowds. Jesus makes no attempt to quell the crowds at this time. So it seems that Jesus is not saying, no, 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 you got it all wrong. Many times uh, the triumphal entry is understood in those terms, that they want a political savior, and so Jesus gets on a donkey to say, no, 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 not that. But I don't think that's exactly right, because Jesus, as we've seen, makes no effort whatsoever to dampen the enthusiasm of the crowds. And so it doesn't seem that Jesus actually wants to oppose and contradict directly or flat out what people are doing. It's like Jesus is saying, yes, 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 you're right. I am the deliverer. Yes, you're right. I am the savior. You're right to cry out Hosanna and to wave palm branches because the victory of the Lord is drawing nigh on your behalf. You're right. But let me explain a little something to you. It seems that that's more what Jesus is doing. So, to understand how Jesus reveals further the nature of his mission, let's look at two Old Testament passages. The first is Psalm 118, 25 and 26, which I already read. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In this passage, we have a prayer for the salvation of God's people by a deliverer. In the context, by a messianic, uh, pardon me, by a king 
uh, and presumably this would be David and his sons who would rise up on behalf of God's people and execute the salvation of the Lord on their behalf. That David or his sons stand up as figureheads at the front of the army and the whole Jewish people cry out, Save us, O God. And then the army goes to battle and God's hand works a victory for them. Right? Blessed be... Um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the king of Israel, who is a figurehead of his army, who is going to save. Now, Jesus comes as the son of David. Jesus comes as the true and better David. Jesus comes as the king of Israel, who is going to be the instrument, the means of working God's salvation as the Old Testament Kings were the instruments or the means of working God's salvation. So Jesus doesn't tell the crowds, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. I'm not a king. Jesus doesn't tell the crowds, no, I'm not a savior. I'm not a deliverer. Put the palm branches away. Because Jesus full well understands that Psalm 118 does find its fullest fulfillment in him. He is the one who is going to save Prayers to Yahweh. Save us, Lord, we pray. Find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And this is why Jesus doesn't dampen the zeal of the crowds during his triumphal entry. For once the crowds have it right, and Jesus encourages their recognition that he is the salvation of the Lord drawing near to Jerusalem. Their salvation is drawing nigh. Indeed. Psalm 118 is well appropriated by the crowds in this instance as they come out waving palm branches and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But if we turn to Zechariah chapter 9, we see the nature of the salvation that God will ultimately bring. And this is what is quoted, by the way, in John chapter 12, which is why I'm turning you here. In chapter, fi- chapter 12 and verse 15 of John's gospel, we read, As it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. If we flip back to Zechariah and read verses 9 to 11, this is what we will encounter. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Right? So far, so good. We're right, we're right in line with Psalm 118. The king is coming. The salvation of God is drawing near. This is exactly what Psalm 118 says. And Jesus is like, yes, that's me. Don't, don't dampen your enthusiasm. You're right. You're exactly right. Behold, your king is coming to you. Having salvation is he. That's me, Jesus says. But let's keep reading. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. This isn't going to be a 
disadvantage. In other words, he's not saying I'm going to strip away your weapons from you when you need them the most. He's basically saying you're not going to need them anymore. Why? Because he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Jesus isn't coming to speak war to the nations like Rome. Jesus is coming to speak peace to the nations. His salvation is for the Jew first and then also for the Gentile. Jesus isn't coming to make, to, to stir up uh, the violent opposition amongst the Jews toward the Romans and to arm them. He's, he's actually coming to make their weapons against Rome unnecessary. He's actually coming to tell them, put down your swords. And to tell the Romans likewise, put down your swords. Jesus is coming not to give the Jews the victory over the Romans, but to reconcile the Jews to the Romans and the Romans to the Jews. To speak peace to the nation so that no one needs war horses and bows and chariots. Jesus' rule is going to be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is going to rule not only over Israel and Judah, but Jesus is also going to rule over all of what was then the Roman Empire and what later became the other great empires of history and the different geopolitical nations which are now on the face of the earth. Jesus came to rule over all and to reconcile people from one to people of another, to make wars cease and to make wars end, to make weapons in the end ultimately unnecessary. This is even better actually than overthrowing the Romans, isn't it? If Jesus just came and overthrew the Romans in the first century, we know full well what would have happened. Maybe peace for a time. A decade, a couple decades, even several decades. And then one empire falls, another rises, more wars happen. Jesus' salvation was so much better than overthrowing the Romans. Jesus, the salvation that Jesus came to bring was to rule over all nations to the ends of the earth in such a way that there is peace between them and among them and that weapons are not needed because of the peace that he brings. There was a concept uh, in the ancient Roman Empire called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it was enforced by law and order that the Romans took uh, insurrection very, very seriously and they would put down any rebellion. And so what happened was because of the mighty right arm of Rome, there was a measure of peace in the Roman Empire, Pax Romana. You didn't really have to worry about being raided by barbarians from outside the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire was so strong that they would protect you and they would watch over you. The trade-off was you just had to submit to Rome. But if you would bow the knee to Rome, there would be Pax Romana, peace in Rome. And you could enjoy it and you could live your life in the context of Pax Romana. There will be, I don't know if my Latin is right here, but 
Pax Christus, something like that, the peace of Christ, which once he rules from sea to sea, once his dominion is from the river to the ends of the earth, there will be the peace of Christ over his whole empire, and we won't need weapons anymore. This is what it means. It's not a disadvantage to say that he's going to cut off the chariot and the war horse and the bow. Like, you're going to need them, but, it, well, it kind of stinks, but you're going to be unarmed. It's not a disadvantage that Christ is going to cut off these things. He's going to cut off these things by making them unnecessary. We're going to beat our swords into plowshares when the peace of Christ is established. After Christ puts all of his enemies under his feet and gathers out of his kingdom all unrepentant evildoers, the peace of Christ will reign, will beat our swords into plowshares, and there will be no more need for chariots and war horses and bows. This is the kind of salvation that Jesus is bringing. This is what he's on his way to do in Jerusalem. How will he accomplish it? By shedding blood, but not by shedding the blood of his enemies, by shedding his own. Zechariah 9 and verse 11, if we go on reading, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. It is by the blood of the covenant that the prisoners will be set free that the peace of Christ will be established upon the earth. It's by the blood of the covenant. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Hebrews 9 establishes the necessity of blood to inaugurate um, the kind of covenant in which there is a provision for the forgiveness of sins. Now, earlier in the chapter, it explains this about Christ's new covenant, which we had read about at the end of Hebrews chapter 8. Chapter 9 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what was pictured in the Old Covenant in the shedding of the blood of bulls and calves and their blood sprinkled on the people. What was pictured was the coming of an ultimate lamb whose blood would be shed and sprinkled on the people in a like manner 
but in a different, a new and better covenant. When Christ Jesus comes, He sheds His own blood, and that becomes the blood of the covenant by which He saves, by which He establishes the peace of Christ in this earth, by which He sets the prisoner free. This is the sort of deliverer He is. This is the sort of Savior He is. He saves by shedding blood, but not His enemies, His own. He saves by shedding His blood in the making of a covenant in which the participants of the covenant receive forgiveness of sins and new hearts which actually desire to live at peace with one another and in which they are promised to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus who is without blemish or spot. And so we have this hope that in Christ Jesus we're going to be free from the penalty for our sin but also from sin itself. And so will everyone else in that covenant. And so when all of the blessings of the covenant are fully and finally poured out upon us, Christ's reign is to the ends of the earth and we live with Him in the new heavens and the new earth with sinless, perfected natures where we don't want to fight anymore and we live under the peace of Christ. Jews together with Gentiles, redeemed members of the Sanhedrin as we've seen some of them have come to Christ, together with redeemed Romans. This is how Jesus delivers. This is how Jesus saves. This is the kind of salvation He's bringing as He enters Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday recorded for us in John chapter 12. And so yes, the crowds are right to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus doesn't dampen their enthusiasm, but He sets Himself on a donkey, on a donkey's colt, to signify, yes, you're right, but let me explain a little bit more about the work I'm going to do. So yes, absolutely. Behold, your king is coming to you, but not to shed the blood of others in war, but to shed his own blood to make peace. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, yes, behold your king. But this is the kind of king that he is. The kind of king who makes weapons unnecessary. Who introduces the peace of Christ by the blood of his covenant. Behold your king. Behold your God. The salvation of your God riding on a donkey into Jerusalem.